You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. And he had still one other, a beloved son. And finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. And last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead... They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, so we're continuing in our series uh, in the Gospel of Mark. And let's begin here. The people of God are to be a question-provoking people. A question-provoking people. We sort of inherited that from Jesus. In fact, Leslie Newbegin put it this way. Live in the kingdom of God in such a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel is the answer. Live in the kingdom of God in such a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel is the answer. But what this statement assumes is a couple things. The first is that there are questions that only the good news of Jesus' rule and reign can really speak to and answer. The other assumption is that the church is the kind of place where questions can be raised and can be stirred. But if we were to be honest, unfortunately today, there's a stigma around Christianity and the church, and it's that the church is not the kind of place that you can bring questions. I remember a conversation early on in in, uh, pastoral ministry, sitting down with a young man who said when he became a teen, he began to really have some serious questions, questions about faith, legitimate questions. And so what he did was he set up an opportunity to meet with his uh, local parish priest and ask those questions. And what he said was from that one meeting, it became abundantly clear that the church is not the kind of place that you can bring your questions. And he said it wasn't because necessarily the questions were seen as bad or threatening so much as he said they were just seen as simply unimportant. There was almost a lack of willingness to engage on any kind of deep level. And so what the priest did was excused him and his very sincere questions away and left him to turn to other sources to answer those questions. But here's the problem. The problem is that people have deep questions that don't go away when we dismiss them. Just excusing those questions away don't eliminate the questions. Questions too great for politics to answer. Questions too great for philosophy to answer. Questions about life and meaning and relationship and the future, and eternity. To be human means to have questions. And the reality is that this does not go away when you become a Christian. If anything, just looking back at my own history, when I became a Christian is when I began to really ask questions and ask better questions than ever before. And what I always loved about the Gospels is seeing just the way that Jesus would engage people's questions countless times. Well, to be specific, 183 times in the Gospels, Jesus engages people's questions. Even here in Mark, we've seen a number of questions. Why do you not fast like these disciples fast? How are you able to heal on the Sabbath? Will you heal my child? Who are you? 
all these people, no food. What's the plan, Jesus? How does marriage and divorce work? How can I inherit eternal life? Who can be saved? Who are you? A frequent question from the disciples as they come away from his public ministry into the privacy of the home and they say, Jesus, what was that all about? Question after question after question. Clearly, Jesus is not afraid of our questions. Can I repeat that? Clearly, Jesus is not afraid of your question. Nor is he incapable of working through them. We see when someone asks Jesus the wrong question, I love it. He digs into it, reshapes it, and redirects our thinking through the process. Even when a question is intentionally controversial, or even as we see in this passage today, when a question is posed in order to entrap Jesus, Jesus still wisely engages the topic and leverages the opportunity to reveal his life-giving truth. He's good like that. He's really good like that. And so today... The gospel continues to impact men and women's lives, not because it offers theoretical ideas, but because it answers some of life's deepest questions. Deep, deep questions. Questions that only the gospel can answer. Questions that the church is uniquely qualified to speak to. And so what we see in this portion of Mark today is that Jesus is responding to a series of very important questions, a question about cultural engagement, a question about eternity, and a question about uh, morality. But before we get into these questions, there is something that we should know about bringing our questions to Jesus, something that we should consider as we bring our questions to Jesus, and it's this, that Jesus engages our questions, but his answers may not be what we expected. Ask your question, but be ready to be surprised. Because what we've seen all throughout the Gospels is that he challenges our assumptions. Jesus unsettles our comfortability. Jesus will take our questions and he'll turn it back into a question posed to us. And even as we see here in Mark chapter 12, he has the right to say to us, like he said to the Sadducees in verse 27, you are quite wrong. Now, I know this sounds like probably the worst thing that anyone can ever do in the 21st century. Because we have in our minds that if someone tells us that we are wrong, that they've somehow undermined our human dignity and our worth. But we need to remember, Jesus, the King of Kings, reserves the right to look us in the face and say, my, my friend, you are wrong. You're wrong. I love you, I know, but you're wrong. Earlier in Mark 11, we're told that the chief priests and the scribes and the elders come to Jesus because Jesus has just caused this big scene in the temple and they ask him a question about his authority. They're questioning his authority. By what authority do you do these things? Who sent you? Essentially what they're saying is who died and made you king? Now note something, when they asked this question, as we saw last week, this was not a question in order to know. This was a question in order to indict. And this is something that we need to note here because there is a huge difference between bringing our questions to Jesus and calling Jesus into question. 
a huge difference between asking Jesus and questioning Jesus. Jesus sees through the hostility, and so he says, I will answer your question if you answer my question. So tell me, what are your thoughts about John the Baptist? And so they begin to debate, but they realize that Jesus has backed them into this logical corner, and they come back and they say, we're not able to answer the question. In which case, Jesus responds in verse 33, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is very key, and I'm spending a lot of time on this so that we catch this. As one ancient theologian, he put it this way, readiness to seek the truth affects the answer. Knowledge is hidden from those who wrongly seek it. Well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And so what Jesus now does is something that he hasn't done for a while. We haven't seen this for quite a while in the book of Mark. Verse, uh, verse 1, chapter 12. He began to speak to them in parables. We haven't seen parables for a while, but now Jesus is reintroducing parables. What are parables? Parables are truths hidden in story form. Parables are the way that Jesus would communicate to the masses, and then as they broke away into privacy with his followers, his devoted disciples, he would explain the same truths, but explicitly in parabolic form to the masses, in explicit form to the disciples. And so what we see going on here is that knowledge is concealed for those who oppose the authority of Jesus Christ, and knowledge is revealed to those who submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. Concealed to those who oppose or opposed, revealed to those who are submitted to Jesus' authority. So even though it doesn't seem like he's going to answer their question, chapter 12 is Jesus' answer to their question, but not explicitly. The way that Jesus answers the question, by what authority do you do these things, is through the form of the parable that we see beginning in verse 1. And what Jesus is going to do through this parable is explain who he is, who sent him, why he came, and he's even going to shed the light on who the religious leaders are in this story in a way that's going to make them very nervous. So let's consider the parable first. This parable in verses 1 through 12 illustrates God's long and difficult relationship with Israel. And it illustrates it like this, that God is the owner of a vineyard and Israel is the tenant, are the tenants. God, the owner, Israel, the tenants. And throughout certain seasons of Israel's history, God would send his servants, also known as the prophets, to speak out against Israel and to call them back toward God to repent of their idolatry and sin and turn back towards God and to challenge their fruitlessness, the prophets speaking out. As we look at this passage and we look at this parable, what may appear off the pages of Scripture is that God is severe. But the thing that we should see most in this passage is that God is patient. Time after time after time, servant after servant, prophet after prophet after prophet, opportunity after opportunity to repent and come back to God. But by and large, they rejected the prophets. They scorned them. 
And so God, at the ultimate cost to himself, sent his own beloved son. But they rejected him as well. And what we see in this parable is that Jesus is God's final appeal to the world. Jesus is God's final word to us. And yet they rejected him as well. And they kill him. But in the sovereign and wise plan of God, what was rejected or what specifically who was rejected now becomes the chief cornerstone of something new, of a new temple, of a new vineyard, of a new humanity. Jesus will be vindicated and on the third day rise to create a new people. In this parable, God's anger and judgment is not just against people in general. We get it in our minds that God's just this angry person that you don't mess with. You just better stay away. No, no, no. There's something specific going on here. The anger and judgment is specifically directed towards those who reject his authority and specifically reject the authority of his son. And so as much as the crowds had a difficulty determining these parables and the meanings of these parables in the past, this one is painfully clear. They understand it. They get what Jesus is saying. In fact, look at me in verse 12. And they were seeking to now arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. It's stinging. And now they're responding. And so what this does is set, sets the stage for the questions to come. Again, as I mentioned earlier, questions like how do we engage culture? Well, you know, what does the future hold? What is true morality? We, we want to just jump to the, to the questions and get Jesus' answers. But he's pressing something deeper. And what this shows us is that the answers to our questions are not going to make sense apart from the authority of Jesus Christ. They won't land on our heart. We won't get the kind of answers that we need most if it's separated from submission to the authority of King Jesus. As we consider that point, as we begin to look through these questions, it becomes clear that each answer to each question comes back to God's claim on us. To the question about paying taxes, Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar, but render to God what is God's. The question about marriage and the resurrection, what Jesus said is that God is the God of the living and the dead, that he, is, he has the power to raise people from the grave, that he is the God of the living, that his authority extends to life, death, and eternity. And even the question about morality, what's ultimately the conclusion? Give God your everything. Give God your heart. Give God your mind. Give God your soul and your strength. It is all his. So here, this is a really long introduction, but if we don't get it, we miss it all. Here's the question Jesus is pushing you to answer in this parable before we can dig into these questions. The question is this. Will you receive God's son or will you reject him? Will you receive him or will you reject him? 
because how you answer that question will determine how the answers are interpreted and received. And ultimately, what he alludes to in the final portion of our passage this morning, how you answer that question will determine whether or not you are near to the kingdom of God or within the kingdom of God. Because it's an eternity of a difference being near to the kingdom of God and within the kingdom of God. Will you reject him or will you receive him? So let's consider these questions. Let's look first at the cultural question found in verses 13 through 17. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, I know as we're reading this, this probably seems like the least relevant question that the church is facing today. As a pastor, I get a number of questions about the church's view on this or the Bible's description of this, and there are a lot of pressing questions out there, but I gotta tell you right now that I rarely get any questions about how to pay taxes. And so this doesn't seem very controversial. Uh-oh. <laughs> this doesn't seem very controversial, but we need, to, we need to go back into the world of the first century. Because in the first century in Palestine, this was a huge dilemma that they were facing. Because beneath the question about whether or not we should pay taxes to Caesar was this question. How do we give our allegiance to God when we live in a place that is demanding that we give our allegiance, our ultimate allegiance to Caesar? How do we navigate this really treacherous territory here where we've been called to give everything to God, but we live in a place that's demanding that we give everything to Caesar? And so there were different ways that people navigated this. There were the groups that turned towards revolution, and then there were groups that turned towards assimilation. There were those who said, let's rise up, let's fight against the governing authorities, let's take up the sword, let's push back. And then there were other groups that essentially said, let's settle into the new way of the Roman world. Let's not rock the boat. I think we, we can legitimately bow the knee to Caesar and, and continuing, continue to keep our, uh, our sort of distinct uh, identity here. But little did they know that Jesus was actually offering an entirely new approach here, a very different way. Many saw that Jesus was a nonconformist. They believed that Jesus was in Jerusalem to begin an insurrection. That's why they lined the streets saying, Hosanna, son of the King David. They think that he is there to overturn all the governing authorities. It is insurrection time. It is go time. And so the reason this question is being asked is because, explicitly because of hypocrisy, but what they're trying to do is set a trap for Jesus. Because if he answers the question, no... It's going to be interpreted as, okay, it's go time. We're revolting against Caesar. Don't pay his taxes. It's time to take up the sword, in which case it would land him in hot water with Rome. But if he said yes, he would have another dilemma because this would land him in hot water with the Jewish community, especially because of the nature of these coins that we're talking about here represented. In the ancient world, people would typically live under the authority of kings. And oftentimes, these kings, just like in the Roman Empire, would claim to be divine. In fact, they would call themselves the image of God. And the Tiberian denarius, which we're talking about here, was more than just a coin. It, had, it, it was sort of an idol of sorts. And it had the inscription, uh, or I'm sorry, the picture 
carved into it of the emperor with an inscription that read like this, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Tiberius Caesar, son of God. This was problematic. This was a taboo for the people of God because they were not allowed to possess any graven images. Why? Well, one reason is because God's image can't be reduced down to one single thing in creation. But I think the bigger picture is this, that God has designed for humanity to bear the image of God, not filthy coins. It goes back all the way to the beginning in Genesis chapter 1 where God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. God has reserved his image to be stamped on you and me, not coins or idols. Needless to say, these coins were taboo. It would be as if we today on our dollar bill had strange and suspicious pagan pagan symbols like an all-seeing eye sitting on top of a pyramid-like structure of power. Wait. So Jesus asked the people, you guys are cold and tired today. I can just tell. So we're just going to keep going. This one's for you guys in the back. Okay, so Jesus asks the people, whose image is that? And they say, it's Caesar's. So Jesus essentially says, all right, guys, novel idea here. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And the people marvel, like emoji brain explosion going on here. Like, what? The idea of render to Caesar what is his and to God what is his became the mantra and really the motto of the early church in navigating very difficult times. And one voice specifically that really latched on to this idea was St. Augustine. And he puts it pretty simply, but in a really profound way. He said, we are God's money, but we are like coins that have wandered away from the treasury. What was once stamped upon us has been worn down by our wandering. The one who restamps his image upon us is the one who first formed us. He seeks his own coin as Caesar sought his coin. Caesar seeks his image. Render it. God seeks his image. Render it. Do not withhold from Caesar his coin. Do not keep from God his coin. So the, there's a million implications for this, but what it's essentially saying is, Fulfill your civil responsibilities and duties, but give God your entire being. Pay your taxes to your government, the appointed king, but offer your everything to the Lord, who is the king above all kings. Give God your everything. Let's look secondly, I'm going to have to speed this up, to the eternal question found in verses 18 through 17. Here in Mark, we're introduced to the, for the first time the Sadducees. And they're asking Jesus a question about marriage and the resurrection, but it becomes very clear that they don't really care about the marriage conversation as much as they care about the resurrection conversation. So we're not going to dig into the marriage portion of this, but specifically the resurrection. Now, the Sadducees were a a faction of the Jewish community that did not believe in a resurrection. Mark makes that explicitly clear. 
for a couple of different reasons. One is that it was politically risky because those who believed in an afterlife would be more inclined to do risky things against the Roman government knowing that there's another life coming. Also, they were a people of the book, and specifically, they held to the first five books of the scriptures called the Torah. And they said, we don't see anything about resurrection here. Now, it's interesting. People have interesting relationship with the afterlife and have for thousands and thousands of years. There have been cultures that believe in the afterlife. There have been cultures that don't believe in the afterlife. We see cultures that are very involved in the preparations of the afterlife, like the Egyptians, but then we, other, we see other portions of history where there was no concern for the afterlife. In fact, uh, I was reading about some archaeologists that found a tomb called the Epicurean Epitaph, which has now become popular to put on your tomb. I hope none of you do this. This is what one of the ancient tombs they found read. I was not, I was. I am not, I don't care. How's that for doom and gloom? I was not, then I was, then I was not, whatever. Like, that's it. You live, and then you die, and then it's done. To this day, there are very interesting ways that people try to explain the afterlife and reason with death. Uh, We hear things like, they are now a star in the sky that's looking down on us. We hear things like, so-and-so is now a spirit that lives on in all of us. Some of us take less mystical and spiritual approaches, like spreading people's ashes in someone's favorite location as their sort of final resting place. There's also a lot of confusion in the Christian church. I hear often of ideas of heaven that goes something like this, that when you die, you become a disembodied spirit that floats off into space into some place called heaven forever. But as we explored this last Easter... The Bible doesn't speak of heaven as this strictly spiritual afterlife in space where we're floating around as disembodied spirits. When the scriptures talk about heaven, it speaks of the work of Jesus Christ renewing and transforming the physical creation, and it gives us the hope of the resurrection with Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel is that through the death of Jesus Christ, he has conquered death on behalf of those who trust in him. As we are united with Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection, his resurrection from the grave becomes our hope that we will be resurrected with him as well, where we will experience and enjoy the restored world that God set out to fulfill through his death and resurrection, where we will forever experience life and freedom and peace and satisfaction. This is the hope of the gospel. Now, I, was recently, uh, I recently spoke at a funeral of a sister who was part of reality years ago. And if I could be honest, I don't necessarily enjoy speaking at funerals, but every single time I'm afforded this amazing reminder of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And there's like no place on earth quite like a funeral or memorial service to remember it. And I was able to look a grieving family straight in the eyes and with so much confidence because of the authority of God that extends over life, death, and eternity and tell them there's hope in Jesus Christ. Like there is hope. For those who trust in him, death does not have the last word. I know like on days today, like today, death seems so final, but it is not. Death does not have the last word. Life awaits those 
who trust in him. The apostle Paul would say, but we do not want you to be uninformed. Don't be ignorant. Like if there's any sin in the 21st century, it's ignorance, so don't be ignorant. Brothers, about those who are asleep, those who have died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry and command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise. That's what awaits us. Following Jesus means entrusting your future to him. It's a big thing to have like your five-year, your 10-year, your 20-year plan. That's great. But God is calling you to a greater vision for life that extends beyond the typical stages of life like career, family, and retirement. Jesus is giving you a vision that's beyond your like four score and some. God is calling us to think about eternity Friend, you need to begin to think about eternity. You need to live your life in light of eternity. You need to begin to invest in your eternity. Beyond the five, beyond the 10, beyond the 20, beyond the 40-year plan. To see what God holds for you in eternity. What this is calling us to is to say to Jesus, you are Lord of my life, you are Lord of my death, you are Lord of my eternity. The reason I say this is we can only make sense of all of our questions about the future when we see them in light of Jesus holding our eternity in his hands of love. There's a lot of uncertainty in the world right now, I know. And there's a lot of questions that we can't answer. But there's a distinct clarity that comes to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ when we see Jesus holding our future in those nail-scarred hands. Look there. Let's look finally at the moral question. I blame Matt for going long earlier. <laughs> Don't my time. <laughs> Let's look last at the moral question, verses 28 through 34. There are 39 books in the Old Testament, over 600,000 words, and 613 direct commands from God. If you were to take all of that and consolidate it all into one statement, what would it be? That's behind the question that this person is asking Jesus. Which commandment is the most important of all, verse 28? What is the most important? What's the greatest commandment? What really is like the bullseye of Scripture What's, what's, what's the command that everything else in Scripture hinges on? And Jesus answered, verse 29, the most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Love God, love your neighbor. This, I believe, is really the pressing question even today. Underneath all of the rhetoric that I hear in the news, social media, and conversations that I'm engaged in, at least, it really seems to be all the same question, like, what is true morality? 
what is the most important thing to do? What is the right thing to do? We're asking it about human rights. We're asking it about education. We're asking it about economics. We're asking it about foreign relations. We're asking it about immigration. We're asking it about climate change and artificial intelligence. All these questions, we're essentially asking, what is the right thing? Very rarely do I meet someone that is just not interested in the right thing. Or at least their perception of the right thing. See, the dilemma that we face today is not so much a lack of concern for morals as much as a lack of agreement about what truly is moral. And Jesus says, I'm going to sum up the law in this. The law is summed up in love. Love for God and love for neighbor. And even more so, not only do we lack agreement about what that really is, here's the issue. We lack the ability to be and live truly moral people. We lack the capacity to step in to the vision of morality. And so the question for us is, what is the solution? How do we become what God's vision for his people has always been and Jesus now reiterates? How do we become a people marked by love for God and love for our neighbor? Well, the answer is this. We need a revolution. We need a revolution. What we see in in this final portion, this final portion of Mark, is that Jesus rode into Jerusalem to begin a revolution. That's what he's here for. But clearly, it's not the kind of revolution that everyone is expecting, and it's barely the kind of revolution that we're expecting. To most, the answer was political revolution. To most, the idea is social reform or even religious reform. The idea is if you change the government, if you change society, if you change religion, then people will change. Change these big issues, and then we will change. But Jesus has something different in mind. As Dallas Willard put it, the revolution of Jesus is in the first place and continuously a revolution of the human heart. Like I said, we need a revolution. But the revolution doesn't begin out there, friend. The revolution begins in here. This is where we need the revolution. Jesus entered into Jerusalem to transform the entire world. To turn it upside down with the kingdom of heaven. But this wasn't going to come by overturning governments. This would come by changing people from the inside out, one heart at a time. The revolution of Jesus Christ is a revolution of love. What we're hearing right now is the manifesto of a soon-to-be king. And this is his manifesto. Love God and love your neighbor. God transforms lives and thereby transforms the world by transforming our loves. Or actually what we're seeing here in Mark, more specifically by reordering our loves. By reordering our loves. Our sinful condition is that our heart is full of of disordered love. Typically where we begin is ourselves. Love for self and then everything else flows from that. But as God renews our hearts, it begins to be filled with reordered love, love for God first, and then love for neighbor, and then in our love for God and in our love for neighbor, we discover that our love is filled as well. 
our tank is filled as well. This is how we're delivered from ruin and become the men and women that we are intended to be. This is how we can now fulfill the law of God and live in to the vision of the scriptures by love. But then this poses another question. How does this revolution come into our lives? How does this revolution affect us? How do we join the revolution of Jesus Christ? And I'll tell you this, it's not by your own willpower. It's not by your ability to be good. It's not by your ability to discern what is good. This is a revolution that comes into our lives by the grace of God at work within us. What the scriptures describe is a changed heart that comes to us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and then is applied to us by the work of the Holy Spirit through faith. The Apostle Paul would sum up this revolution quite simply like this. We love because he loved us first. How are we able to step into the vision that God has for us in a way that transforms the world? Because God loved us first with a never-ending sacrificial love displayed for us in Jesus Christ at the cross. And so as we place our trust in Jesus Christ, what happens is we come under his healing and transforming reign. We give to him our whole self. We trust to him our, our mind. We entrust to him our body. We entrust to him our heart. We entrust to him our soul. We give it all to him. All to him. And you will receive back the self that you could never make and create on your own. And as he changes your life, and as he changes your love, what you'll begin to see the world around you, in the world around you, is that the world around you is beginning to change as well. And what I want to do is I want to conclude from a quote by an author named J.B. Phillips, who takes this up and he sums it up like this. The Christian faith took root and flourished in an atmosphere almost entirely pagan, where cruelty and sexual immorality were taken for granted, where slavery and inferiority of women were almost universal, while suspicion, I'm sorry, superstition and rival religions with all kinds of bogus claims existed on every hand. With this pagan chaos, the early Christians, by the power of God within them, lived lives as sons of God, demonstrating purity and honesty, patience and genuine love. They were pioneers of a new humanity. These early Christians were on fire with the conviction that they had become, through Christ, literally sons of God. They were pioneers of the new humanity, founders of a new kingdom. They still speak to us across the centuries. And here's the point for us today. Perhaps if we believed what they believed, we might achieve what they achieved. Perhaps if we believed what they believed, we'd achieve what they achieved. Let's pray.